So to come and follow Jesus requires that we undergo a comprehensive change in our lives, a complete change in turning about. Um, in the church, we talk frequently about being made new, about being reborn, about dying and rising again. And all of that means that following Jesus is emphatically not about adding a little bit of Jesus to an already okay and somewhat fulfilling life to kind of help me along my way, which I'm afraid is sometimes the way that we like to think about him. But it's actually quite the opposite for us if we follow Christ. Jesus actually speaks, as Sam just read for us, about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. He makes claims, actually, in Luke chapter 14, to absolute loyalty and allegiance by telling us that unless we hate our father and mother, our wife and our children, our brothers and our sisters, yes, even our own life, that we cannot be his disciples. So as we listen to these words of Jesus, we begin to understand that that following Jesus is an all-or-nothing kind of thing. It's it's not an add-on, but it's an all-or-nothing reality. So let's consider for a moment baptism. I'm pointing to this wonderfully, you know, state-of-the-art baptistry, otherwise known as a jacuzzi tub. Um, That will do just fine for what we have to do tonight with Deason. But this is something that we'll witness together here in a few minutes. And this visually signifies uh, the reality of which it is a sign, that Deason will be buried in the waters of baptism, signifying death to her old self. And then she'll be raised up out of those waters, signifying her rising to new life in Christ. The old is buried, the new is raised. And as she comes up out of the water, then we will make the sign of the cross on her forehead and claim her by making that sign upon her as Christ's faithful soldier, now ready to fight the good fight of faith for the rest of her life. Her new life then is a reorientation in the fullest. And it's defined now and marked by the cross of Jesus. It's a whole new direction. After we finish the baptism, we'll bring um, we'll, we'll commission decent and exhort her with these words, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. These are words that are stolen from Ephesians chapter 4 from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And that's the call for all of us who have been baptized, who have faith in Jesus as Lord. It's a call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. And so what this means in a very practical way is that our lives are always to reflect our identity in Jesus. They're always to reflect this new thing that God has done in us, in the external, in the way that we live, what we think about. So what we pursue in life, the way that we think about things in life, our ambitions in life, our values, our goals, um, all of these things in us, are the way that we spend our time and the way that we spend our money, all of this is to be consistent with the claim that we make in our baptism that Christ is Lord. So this is our calling, to be holy, to be set apart, to be holy as God is holy, to be like the father of our family and like the firstborn who is the brother who is Jesus. We are to be like him. That's the call before us. That's the call that we'll put to you, decent in a little while as you go into the waters of baptism. But it's obvious that the world is living in a different direction. The world is walking to a different beat. It's not moving in sync with the reality that Jesus is Lord, but with a, a thousand other little G kinds of gods, the world that we live in. There are ver- versions of retirement in our world or of success or of influence that don't actually reflect the wisdom of God in the cross. 
And we live smack dab in the middle of that world as those who have been changed, those who have been reborn in Christ. And it's easy, therefore, sometimes for us to get knocked off the course, to go a different direction than the wisdom that God has revealed in Jesus. So instead of living worthy of the calling, we'll start mimicking the world around us and playing its games to become someone in this world. To live according, not to the wisdom of the cross, but according to the wisdom of the world. And when this happens in Deason's life, or when it happens in your life, or when it happens in my life, we need reminders of the gospel of Jesus, of our calling and of our identity, and the godly admonition of brothers and sisters and mentors and pastors in our lives to call us back to this whole reorientation, this death and this rising again, that isn't meant to be a piecing together of two different kinds of wisdom, but is a whole hook, line, and sinker buying into one kind of life and one way of wisdom to correct our course. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. To this young church in Corinth that he had planted about five years earlier, they had gotten off the track. They had started marching according to a different kind of wisdom. And their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, is seeking in his letter to Corinth to lovingly expose their folly and to call them back to faithfulness to the wisdom of Christ and Him crucified. They've begun to be important in the eyes of the world around them. But Paul tells them, as we've seen over the past few weeks, that through the cross and God's choice of them and God's use of the weakness of the Apostle Paul himself, God has in fact actually turned the world upside down. It's been turned on its head. And then at this point, where we get to this actually notoriously difficult text in chapter 2, there's lots in it, as you heard Doc read it, um, that makes you start to scratch your head, Paul actually begins to use irony to drive his point home to this young church in Corinth. The Corinthians are claiming to be wise. They're claiming to be spiritual. They're claiming to be mature through their possession of exalted knowledge and rhetorical flair and skill and so on and so forth and through the teachers that they have that can do that. And that pursuit of worldly wisdom in Corinth had led to a kind of spiritual elitism in their body, which is dividing up the community into various factions. And so here's my quick summary of what Paul just said in Ephesians 2, 6 through 16 and 3, 1 through 4. He says something like this essentially to the church in Corinth. Look, you're claiming to be wise and spiritual and mature but I'm going to beat you at your own game. We have a wisdom that we impart among the mature. So he's claiming their words that they value, wisdom, spiritual, spiritual and mature, and saying, you know, we have that. We have a wisdom that we impart among the mature, but it's not a wisdom of this world. And we know what that wisdom is. We've been in this text for a while. That's the wisdom of Christ and Him crucified. Paul's not now introducing another kind of esoteric wisdom that then enables there to be a new kind of spiritual elites within the church. There is no elitism in the church. He's saying, look, we proclaim one kind of wisdom, and it's a wisdom that's not of this age, and it's not of the rulers of this age, who, by the way, are actually passing away, he says in verse 6. They didn't see the secret and hidden wisdom that God has revealed. That's why they killed Jesus. And God actually intended it to be this way so that it would humble the powerful the well-to-dos, the somebodies of our world. So this is my paraphrasing of Paul. But then he says in verse 10, he says, well, this wisdom was revealed to us by the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 10. God has made known to us all that God has freely given to us in his Son through the cross. So we have a wisdom. The world didn't get that. They didn't see that wisdom. That wisdom was given to us by the Spirit. And this wisdom, verses 14 through 16, is, is actually foolishness to the natural mind. 
because it's spiritually discerned. So left to your own resources, you cannot understand and see the beauty and the wonder of what God has done in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he means, actually, when he says um, that a spiritual person is judged by no one. That's kind of archaic and heart- or, or enigmatic. Spiritual person is judged by no one. In other words, the world can't figure you out if you've begun to see the wisdom of Jesus in him crucified. Especially as you begin to pour out your life in love and pursue a kind of downward mobility in your life, in your day-to-day. The world cannot judge or discern that kind of life. They can't see it. But, he says, we can judge all things because we have the mind or the spirit of Christ. We know actually how the world really works. We know what's really going on in the world. We know what's real and true and what's false and erroneous because we've been given this wisdom from God. And then he goes on to say, look, Corinth, if you were really mature, if you were really spiritual, if you really were um, wise, as you claim to be, you wouldn't be living in rivalry and quarreling with one another. But you would be unified in love as one body. Remember, he started there, verse 10, chapter 1, urging them, exhorting them to be of one mind and to agree in everything. All of that quarreling and rivalry and dissension in your midst just actually shows that you're actually immature and anything but spiritual or wise as you're claiming to be. So that's in essence what Paul says in this text that we're looking at tonight. And I want to make now, four contrasts between the wisdom that, Paul, that, that the Corinthians are claiming to have and the wisdom that Paul says that he has. So it's a, it's, a, it's a battle, if you will, between two people, two groups who are claiming to be spiritual and wise and mature. And I want to show some of the fault lines in that battle. First, there is a contrast between these two wisdoms in their durations. In their durations. The world and its wisdom outside of God is passing away. But the wisdom of God and his kingdom will actually last forever. It will endure to the end. Paul said it in verse uh, 28 of chapter 1. He said that God has chosen the things that are not in order to make the things that are turn into nothing. And the verb that he uses there to talk about these things that are, that the somebodies of our world turning into nothing, is the same verb that he uses in chapter 2 verse 6 when he says that the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. Same idea. That wisdom and all that glory that comes from the world will not last. It doesn't count for anything because ultimately it's destined for destruction and perishing. It doesn't go anywhere. The cross, God's true wisdom, reveals that the wisdom of this age will actually pass away. That's the logic of the cross. Back in in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is, there is a world that is perishing, and then there is a world that is lasting and being saved and enduring. And the implication of this distinction between a wisdom that lasts and a wisdom that only shines for a moment is this. Why, Corinth, would you spend your life pursuing the wisdom of the world which is passing away? Why, in light of what God has revealed in the cross, would you give your life to becoming powerful or famous or wealthy or wise or smart All things that the wisdom of the world has said are so desirable. Why would you give yourself to these kinds of pursuits? In Christ, you've been given access to understand actually how the world works. Which again is what Paul means by being able to judge all things. You can see what's true and real and lasting and what's not. 
You know that at the center of the universe, there is a being who is unified in three persons in love, whose love radiates out through the world and therefore is then to be reflected in your relationships with one another. You can see through the mirage of the short-sighted, self-centered visions of glory because you have the love of God in Christ. So the question is this, Corinth, or Church of the Cross, why, having seen all of that, why are you letting the rulers of this age set your agenda? Why are you letting them set the goals for you? They can't discern that. They can't figure out what, in fact, is truly real and lasting in accordance with God's revelation that he's made known in the cross of Jesus. So why are you living for their honors and their accolades? Why are you letting them, instead of Jesus, the one you claim to be Lord, set the terms of engagement for your life in the world? Our office down in Back Bay is actually located right next to the new Liberty Mutual building that they're building something, I don't know, 35 stories. And I've watched over the last year and a half how they've taken incredible detail and care in building this, uh, this you know, high-range, mid-range tower in the city uh, on the foundation and then the steel, the, the steel beams and the posts and everything that goes into it. And what Paul's saying in a sense is, why are you taking all this time and effort to build a structure like this upon a ground that is not stable or lasting or secure? That's not the way for you to live. It's God's kingdom. God's kingdom. This upside down kingdom that was established in the death and resurrection of his son. That's what will last. And you, Corinth, need to live in accordance with that kind of wisdom. Not in this other way. And as you do that, no one in this world can tell you what is right, what is discerning. And one of my former former colleagues in ministry um, was on the path to worldly glory and recognition. He was in a PhD MD program down in Florida and was doing quite well. Very bright guy. And in the middle of that program came to understand that actually the Lord was calling him into ministry, calling him to leave all of that behind and and become just another pastor for just another mom-and-pop kind of church. And as he made that transition and stepped out in faith, believing this is what God would have him to do, his own father rebuked him and said, why are you being so foolish with your life? Why is it that you're throwing all of this away that you have that the Lord has given to you. Why are you throwing all of that away to go and just do this? And that's an example of what it means that the world cannot judge you if you've seen into the reality of Christ and Him crucified, of the way that God's kingdom actually works, then those outside of that position won't be able to understand the life that you lead and the life that you live. So instead of changing and and caving in and conforming to the standards and the wisdom of this world, instead of chucking God and and the cross out the window and living by those standards as the Corinthians have seemed to do, stay true to these things. Remember what lasts, what is true, what God has revealed. The second contrast between these two wisdoms is the manner in which we see them. The manner in which we see them. For those who are wise according to the standards of the world, there is always a self-referential sense of accomplishment in seeing and accomplishing the wisdom of this world. Think about Corinth. They were trying to gain social and cultural status by attaining exalted, mysterious knowledge and rhetorical skill. 
And as you go out on that path of pursuing the wisdom of the world, consider it wisdom in Corinth, maybe it's intellectual know-how in Boston, or wealth, or whatever it might be, and you find yourself actually attaining it, there will be a sense in which you acknowledge that you were the source and the cause of finding this true wisdom. And that will lead, as it has in Corinth, to a kind of elitism in your own heart. Now, you may not go around parading that to people around you, but it may be something that just pervades and deeply uh, gets intertwined inside of your heart in the way that you think about the world and the way that you think about others. The temptation then to begin to be satisfied with ourselves, to see ourselves as a cut above, to see all of those who don't have this kind of wisdom, haven't made it in this kind of way, as somehow second class, and so on and so forth. Verse 10, Paul paints a contrast to this when he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That is, no one who lives according to the wisdom of the cross can ever take any kind of credit or, um, or self-congratulatory stance in being a part of this way that the world really is, in being a part of the kingdom of God. There is no pride, there is no boasting, there is no special status, there is no elitism in the kingdom. Because we've come upon this wisdom in a way that is far outside of our own resources. And it's surely by the Spirit of God that God has given to us that we've been able to see now that the cross is not foolishness. It's not a stumbling block. But it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. And because it's come by the Spirit, not one of us can walk to those waters of baptism with any sense of right or any sense of claim or any sense of of better than. But we come humbly. We come as those who have received a great gift. We come as those whom God has blessed and allowed to see into this world that the the, the rulers of this age, Paul says, could not see. But not because we had such great eyesight, but because of the gift of his spirit. Now let me say this for just a moment. Now, some of you might say, well, since this gift comes from God through the spirit, then I should just kind of Maybe you're here seeking or just asking questions about the church. Well, then I should just sort of sit back and hang out and wait until the day that God just kind of gives me that gift and then I go forward. And I think that Deason will say in her testimony that that's not the way that this works, actually, necessarily. That to say that this revelation comes by the Spirit of God is not therefore then to say that we are not to go looking and seeking. What does Jesus say? Seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened. There is a seeking that we are called to. If you're asking questions about Jesus, don't let the reality that when you find him, you give all credit and glory to God who's given his spirit to you that you might see deter you from in this moment, on this side, actually asking the question, being honest about your doubts, asking the hard questions to people in this community, saying, here's where I'm at. How can I get further? Who is Jesus really? And going down that route because often that is the very means that God uses to then give you his spirit and reveal the truth about the cross of Christ to us. There's a third contrast. It's not just the manner in which we see it, but it's what we actually see. What we actually see. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of him, of, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. When we begin to get a glimpse into the wisdom of the kingdom of God, when we get a glimpse into the wisdom of Christ and Him crucified, what we see is not something that we have gained by our own effort and attempt and vigor, but it's 
what we see is the beauty and the wonder and the lavishness of what God has given to us as his children. The things freely given us by God. That's what we begin to see. Verse 30 of chapter 1. Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We see that God in his great mercy and grace has given us everything that we've ever wanted and needed in this foolishness of the cross. And that then, of course, unlike the wisdom of the world where what we see in that wisdom is our own effort and attempts at being great, actually materializing and leading therefore then to pride and an elevation, once again, what we see when we see it as a God who has given us everything is that it brings us to a place of emptiness and humility. And it takes the pressure off. Some of you I know live under great pressure. A lot of that is self-imposed. A lot of that is imposed by the culture in which we live. That you must be something. When we see that God has given us everything, that pressure is quite literally popped. It's exploded. It's off. It's lifted. It's gone. So that now in Christ, having understood all of the lavishness of God's gifts to us in the cross, we are free. For the first time, we're free. When we die and we're buried, we die to a master that enslaves us. When we rise to new life, we we rise in freedom. Freedom that says God has given me all that I am and all that I need and all that I will ever have. And I belong to him. And that then opens the door for us to a new kind of living. The kind of living to which all of us are called in him. The fourth thing is the fruit. The fourth contrast is the fruit of these wisdoms. And this is the one where Paul ends as he ramps into chapter 3, as he rolls into chapter 3. First he says in verse 16, this, this verse that sometimes I think we wonder, what does he mean? He says, but you have the mind of Christ. Now the manner in which we see this wisdom and what we see when we see this wisdom both lead us to a humility, don't they? There's another passage in Scripture that actually speaks in some ways of the mind of Christ, and it's Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And then what does it articulate about Christ? It says, you know, he didn't take what was his advantage and use it to exploit it to even greater glory for himself. But he emptied himself. He became nothing. He became obedient, even to the point of death. In other words, he chose a course of love and obedience to bless people who were not worthy of being blessed. He chose a path that would empty himself and lead him to great pain and suffering in order that people like you and me might have life and joy and peace for the rest of eternity. That's the direction that he went. You have the mind of Christ, Paul says. He's quoting Isaiah 40, 13, which in the Hebrew says the Spirit of the Lord as it was read to us tonight. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says the mind of the Lord. And so in many ways, Paul is using mind and spirit here as an equivalent. You have the spirit. You have the mind of Christ. And that is a spirit and a mind that leads you not, Corinth, as you're doing, claiming this wisdom according to the world and its standards, which leads you to a kind of elitism that then leads you to rivalry and dissension and jealousy in your midst. But you have a different kind of spirit that leads you to unified love and charity and compassion and care in your midst. The fruit of the one kind of wisdom 
will always, in one form or another, be a division between the haves and the have-nots. It will be a jealousy because you've got more of it than I do. You've been more successful than I have. You're smarter than me. You're more beautiful than me. You speak more languages than I do. There will always be some kind of division going on there. So Paul chastises the the church in Corinth. This is his sort of slam dunk and says, look, you claim to be spiritual, you claim to be wise, you claim to be mature. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, not as mature, but as infants in Christ. I, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't re- yet ready, and you're still not ready for it now. You're still of the flesh. You're still living according to this wisdom of the world, because while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human kind of way, behaving only according to the kingdoms of this world, and not according to the kingdom of Christ, the Lord? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The fruit of this wisdom is division and rivalry and dissension. What Paul means here to live in the fleshly way is to live in a way that produces rivalry and jealousy in the Christian community. But the fruit of the wisdom that God has revealed by His Spirit, that we see only by His Spirit, That is a wisdom that shows that God is the great giver and that all of us, every single one of us, is simply a receiver of grace. The fruit of that wisdom, the mind, the spirit of Christ, leads us then to a community life that is grounded in love and unity and agreement. Because we're no longer living according to the kingdom of this world, to the wisdom of this world, but according to the wisdom of Jesus. The world is flowing strongly in one direction. Strongly downstream. But in Christ, we have been called and given the gift of swimming upstream. Which is not a way of getting more for me. But it's a way of taking on the image, the form of Christ. It's a way of taking up the cross and pouring my life out for you and you for me and us for decent, and decent for us, as we welcome her into this family. That is the wisdom of God in Christ and Him crucified. May God make it so for us, may God make it so for decent, and as we remember God's pledge to us, as we watch her in baptism, may He make it so for our community, that we would be a community that lives according to this wisdom that is so contrasted with the wisdom that all of us know we hear every day. Amen? Amen.